This is The Guardian. Today, an underwater crime and the unexpected place its trail might lead. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. On the morning of September 26 last year, there was unusual seismic activity detected in a patch of the Baltic Sea near Denmark. Soon after, Danish authorities issued a warning to passing ships. Plumes of gas were appearing in different places, forming giant craters on the ocean's surface, some stretching 700 metres across. The leaks are under investigation. Um, Their initial reports indicating that uh, this may be the result of an attack or some kind of sabotage, but these are initial reports and we haven't confirmed that yet. But if it is confirmed, that's clearly... Submarines sent to investigate quickly discovered the source of the leak. Sabotage of a network of pipelines that, until recently, were the biggest source of Russian natural gas to Europe. They'd been blown up and who had done it became a source of global speculation. And last week, the first real suspects emerged. This is an extraordinary story. It could have come out of a Hollywood movie. Doubtless, several books will be written about it in, in years to come. You know, you're talking about a kind of daring commando raid carried out by five men and one woman. They hire a boat, the Baltic Sea. They dive down, they blow up these gas pipelines, the Nord Stream pipelines running from Russia to Germany. And you know what? Nobody knows who did it at the time. It causes these extraordinary explosions and huge damage. They're able to get away with it. Accounts of the bombing, published in different media outlets, are starting to answer questions about an international mystery but they're also raising new ones. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines and why the truth might point to some uncomfortable places. Dan Sabber, you're The Guardian's defence and security editor, and you've been following the story of the Nord Stream pipelines that run for about 700 miles from Russia under the Baltic Sea and into Germany. And they've been controversial since the first of the pipelines started supplying gas way back in 2011. Why is that? Well, put simply, it was a way of supplying gas from Vladimir Putin's Russia to Angela Merkel's Germany. And a lot of people in the West were quite sceptical about that because they felt that it reinforced... Russia's energy dominance over Europe, and that if the worst were to happen, that Russia could potentially have a hold over large parts of Europe because it supplied so much of their gas. In the past, 
uh, we have seen Russia use uh, energy as a, as a weapon, as a political tool, and we're watching very carefully for uh, any signs of a repeat uh, of those, uh, those kinds of efforts uh, that it's made in the past. Nord Stream 1 was built, completed, and sending gas sort of 10 or so years ago. Nord Stream 2 was in train, the second pipeline, thereby dramatically increasing the, the supply of gas into Germany. It was, in fact, due to come on stream and start supplying gas at or around the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of course, the invasion of Ukraine changed that fundamentally. So the US has never been in favour of these pipelines. They see them as a source of Russian leverage over Europe. And last year, when the war in Ukraine broke out, we discovered they were absolutely right. What begins to happen to this gas supply once Russian tanks roll into Ukraine? Nord Stream 2 actually never, in fact, turns on and starts supplying. And and one of the big things that happens pretty early on in the war is German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says no. We don't want the gas from that. However, it's not quite so straightforward for Germany, which is very dependent on Russia gas from before the war. Suddenly, what Russia was doing was just trying to exert leverage and say, hey, we can turn this gas supply off and on any time we like. If these payments are not successful, we would consider it as buyer's failure to meet their commitments with all the relevant consequences. Nobody sells anything to us for free. Neither are we going to do charity work. That means the current contracts would be brought to a halt. So this becomes a major form of leverage as the war goes on, driving up prices, increasing inflation, increasing the unpopularity of the war, and perhaps forcing the West to turn down its weapons supply to Ukraine. Those last two things don't happen, but that's the Kremlin strategy. Right. So these pipelines are at the very centre of tensions between Russia and the West. And in late September last year, the world discovers they've been sabotaged, blown up. And it sets off this global search for the culprits. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the people investigating this and run through who some of those suspects could be. Beginning with the party that was initially suspected, the Russian government. Dan, could Russia have done this? And why would they? Well, it has to be a professional job because you're talking about pipelines that run, uh, you know, 100 or so metres underwater, give or take. So this is a sophisticated operation on any measure, and it would point to state participation, even if it was not a full-on military operation. Could the Russians have done it? Well, that was the initial suspicion in some quarters and a lot of Western quarters. Why? Well... It certainly allowed it to claim a sort of sense of victimhood that Russian assets and infrastructure were being targeted outside the war zone, outside Ukraine. And so this this would allow Russia to make these kind of points and perhaps make these points diplomatically. Okay, so this theory is that the Russians commit the attack themselves because it helps to paint them in the world's eyes as the victims of this terrible act of terrorism. But on the other hand, Dan, this pipeline, even though it wasn't pumping gas at the time, was still a huge source of leverage for Vladimir Putin. It's transporting a resource that Europe desperately needs. And by blowing it up, Putin is potentially taking it off the table. He's robbing himself of this huge source of leverage, probably for good. Yeah, I mean, this is the obvious weak point in the it was the Russians who did it theory was what did they gain from blowing up their own infrastructure? Those pipelines were expensively built, fit for purpose, and could be useful again one day. And 
you know, geopolitics can move fast. And there could be a time when perhaps a country like Germany would want Russian gas again. I, I must say, I find that part very hard to imagine. The breach between Russia and the West is quite profound, and the direction that Olaf Scholz has taken Germany again is, albeit perhaps not with the speed of the US or the UK, but nevertheless is pretty decisively in support of Ukraine and pretty decisively against Russia. So I can't quite imagine that, but infrastructure is always useful. Okay, so that's the Russians. Who's next? Who's the other possible suspect in this? Well, the Russians are telling you that it might have been the US. It's not a theory I put a lot of store by. However, there are some curious remarks by Joe Biden made on the eve of uh, the war, a couple of weeks before the Russian invasion, that has got everybody talking and no one quite knows what he was referring to. I'll take a, a couple questions each. Uh, Thank you, Mr. President, and uh, thank you, Chancellor Scholz. Um, Mr. President... The US President was a, it was a joint news conference with the German Chancellor, so he was asked about Nord Stream 2. Let me answer the first question first. If Russia invades, uh, then uh, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that? We will... Uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. Wow, okay. Now that that was quite an extraordinary statement. It wouldn't be the first time that Biden said something as misspoke or surprised or confused. But anyway, that was quite an extraordinary statement. It has created a lingering suspicion, which some have found impossible to shake, that, that there must have been some kind of US involvement. And that all got reignited, I guess, when veteran American investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch published a piece at the beginning of February and said it was the US who had taken out the Nord Stream pipeline the problem with the Hirsch argument was that relied heavily on a anonymous source and an awful lot of other information that could not be verified. And although it will have had some traction on the internet, was not really picked up seriously by mainstream media or was accepted as such as a plausible hypothesis. And you've said that you don't personally think there's much chance this was a US operation. What leads you to think it's unlikely that the US did this? I think it would be an insane level of risk for no gain, you know, blowing up infrastructure, causing the release of gas in, in the Baltic. That would rebound very badly on the United States. Now, you might say maybe there would be a scenario in which that would be deemed to have been worth it. Well, okay, let's just entertain that for a second. Remember where we were at. Nord Stream 2 never turned on. Nord Stream 1 had been turned off. Germany and Europe were in the middle of diversifying away from Russian gas. You know, the war had been running for several months. Plans were already in place. So what was being gained? I just struggled to see what would be the benefit to the United States from blowing up a dormant pipeline. So, Dan, this was the speculation that was circulating over the past few months. Publicly, nobody really knew who was behind this. But privately, different governments were trying to get to the bottom of it. And last week, what they were finding seemed to break out into public view. What happened? So, of course, investigations have been going on for some months. Denmark, Germany, Sweden were all investigating it with a great degree of interest. And several months went by. 
these investigators gradually began to make some kind of progress and some information came to light and some hypotheses circulating. And that all came together last week. And we had two sets of news stories. The first was from New York Times, but a more interesting one was through a sort of consortium of German media, but a very good report in Desite, which had a lot of information about how the plot was carried out. All right, let's start with the New York Times report. What did they reveal last week? So the New York Times came up with a very halting, very nuanced, even not always convincing report. It was clear they weren't even that sure themselves, but it had one stark headline, which is that US officials were suggesting that it was a pro-Ukrainian group that had carried out the attack on on the Nord Stream pipeline. Perhaps they were Ukrainians, perhaps they were Russians, but they somehow believed they were acting in the interests of Kyiv. Now, the report went on to say that there was no evidence that Zelensky was involved, that it was state-directed. Now, it was clear that the Americans were sitting on some raw intelligence, uh, which had drawn them to this conclusion. It wasn't clear that they had, as they say in intelligence circles, that it didn't sound like it was a very high degree of confidence. And so it was somewhat unclear what kind of weight to put put on this other than we'd had this headline conclusion. Now, a day later, an interesting report in the Washington Post, clearly following up from the New York Times, indicated that, that there was what looks like some kind of signals intelligence, some kind of trawl of emails or, or, or phone conversations. They'd found what's called chatter, some kind of sort of chatter in which pro-Ukrainian individuals or entities had discussed the possibility of carrying out an attack. Now, these were only discovered weeks or sometime after the uh, actual explosion. They were looking post hoc after the fact. But clearly something had been picked up. It was clearly not decisive. It wasn't sort of, you know, guys on a radio diving down to the bottom of the Baltic Sea discussing what they were doing, speaking in Ukrainian. But it was something that suggested that there had been some kind of Ukrainian involvement. Okay, so the New York Times and Washington Post paint this somewhat vague picture of a pro-Ukrainian group, but don't give us much more detail. On the same day, however, this German consortium comes out with their version of this story, and that one is a lot more detailed. What do they have to say? Yes. So the US reports are actually quite frustrating, hard to pin down. And then before you know it, you're not quite sure how far to believe it. What Desire and the German media investigation does is they've picked up German police, German intelligence, they've picked up on the progress of their investigation, and that has much more tangible elements. And it actually leads to a plot that, well, frankly, feels like it could come out of a come out of a movie. So investigators managed to discover that a group of uh, six people, it's very specific, five men and one woman. Uh, hired a yacht from Rostock in early September. There was a team leader, there were two divers, two diving assistants, and a doctor. So again, they were really thinking carefully about the operation. The presumption is that they took the yacht out into the Baltic in the right places, dived down, and this is early in September, by the way, and explosions are in late September, dived down, set some explosions and, and primed them, you know, ready to go in due course. The German authorities said they had found the yacht and had searched it. And what the media reporting was saying was they'd found traces of explosives on a table in the yacht. So we now suddenly we found out quite a lot about how the plot was conducted, that it was this, you know, use of this ordinary yacht, certainly not a naval vessel. But you could really imagine, I think, 
the, the, the whole scenario here. You know, you suddenly you've got a bunch of guys turning up, renting a yacht with some fake passports. You know, the grey chilly Baltic in the background, bobbing up and down on the Baltic Sea, ready to find the right location and ready to dive off and plant these explosives. It's 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 incredibly visual, and you can see both its sophistication and its simplicity all at once. I mean, what's incredible about this account is firstly, as you say, it has this spy movie element to it. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing story that you're telling us about here. But what also strikes me is that all of these accounts, the German and then the American accounts, try to put some daylight between the people who did this and the Ukrainian government. And I'm wondering, why would there be that distinction? How would a pro-Ukrainian group get access to military-grade explosives in military quantities, which is well-trained, have fake passports, without the help of some element within a government, and you'd have to think the Ukrainian government? That's a very interesting question. And I think that there was something about denying that Zelensky and his team had anything to do with this felt very convenient and felt like a kind of politically driven conclusion. It is not a conclusion that US or Western intelligence would want to come to because, of course, Ukraine is the West's ally in this war. The West wants Ukraine to fight this war to the best of its ability, primarily on Ukrainian soil. But this is a kind of escalation of the war outside of the, the battlefield in the region. It's not a military target. It's an infrastructure target. But the whole point is that Ukraine wants, is supposed to be part of the West and is supposed to fight war to a high standard. And so here... It would be uncomfortable if you could point the finger to someone in Zelensky's office or team or somebody within the state. But the reality is that, yes, to fake passports, for example, would would require some kind of engagement with some part of the apparatus of the state. I think acquiring explosives in Ukraine, I don't think that's too difficult. So what are we looking at here? Well, the truth is we don't know potentially some sort of covert resistance group. It could be operating largely independently with access perhaps to some corrupt intelligence officials or with some direction from an intelligence cell that's operating on a rogue basis. All that becomes certainly possible. Could it have been politically directed? You would be bold to definitively rule that out. Will we ever find answers to these questions? I'm not certain that we will. What I think will be much more serious is the question about what level of political direction there was, if any. So the Ukrainians have responded to these allegations. They've denied any role whatsoever. Uh, for me, it's a little bit strange story because it's not it, this story is nothing with us. And I think that investigation of uh, official uh, authorities will describe every details. It's, it's like a compliment for our special forces, but this is not our uh, activity. But what about the governments investigating this? Have they said anything? So one of the people who came out discussing this was um, the new German defense minister, Boris Pistorius. Und wir müssen ja deutlich unterscheiden, ob es eine ukrainische Gruppe war, also im ukrainischen Auftrag gewesen sein könnte oder eine pro-ukrainische ohne Regierung. His main point was that he was warning against jumping to conclusions. But he also stresses that it could have been a false flag operation stage to blame Ukraine. And I think clearly one of the possibilities is it was a Russian operation trying to look like a Ukrainian covert operation. Huh. And that the goal here was 
if you subscribe to this theory, and it is just that a theory, this would be designed to sort of damage Kiev in the eyes of the West and its international reputation, whilst allowing Russia to claim this sort of sense of victimhood that its own infrastructure is being targeted outside the war zone. Right. So the evidence might point us towards a pro-Ukrainian group, but that could be because the Russians have designed the evidence to look that way. I mean, this is it's kind of giving me a headache now. This is a tough investigation. Yeah, but it's perfectly possible, isn't it? It's perfectly possible. And could the Russians go to that kind of level of trouble? Yes. Are the Russians skillful and clever enough to pull off such a thing like that? Maybe. I think generally a lot of Russian covert operations ultimately lack class and are easily detectable. You have to think of, for example, the Novichok poisonings in Salisbury. And then what does Russia do? It puts on TV the guys who allegedly did it and they tell some preposterous story while they were in Salisbury admiring the spire of the cathedral, you know. And, and often Russian covert operations lack subtlety and class. We can do these audacious things that we can do so with impunity because we are Russia. This was much classier and cleverer. So maybe that would militate against the idea of a, a Russian group posing as a Ukrainian group carrying about this operation. But you never know. Coming up, will governments ever discover the real culprits? And do they want to? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Today 
Dan, we might come to know a little more over the course of the next few months about these different theories. And I want to know, what is at stake here? If we find out that it really was done at arm's length from the Ukrainian government by a pro-Ukrainian group, what will that mean? And if the investigations go further and discover a very clear link to the Ukrainian government, how does that change the politics? Generally speaking, um, Kiev has pursued this war with a high degree of discipline. And of course, it's not possible for Ukraine to avoid civilian targets entirely. I'm not trying to say it's got an unblemished record, but I'm trying to say that it's got a better record and is, you know, is trying to do that. But there has always been this kind of open question about how far should Ukraine take the war inside Russia and into Russia. Uh, and we have seen attacks on military bases. But we also saw this um, car bomb attack of last August in Moscow, which killed Daria Dugina, the daughter of Russian nationalist Alexander Dugin, who everyone thought was the primary target. And the idea that Ukraine would try and take the war to the Russian home front with these kind of terrorist-style attacks is certainly something that is a little uncomfortable for the West. These explosions, of course, happened in the international waters of the Baltic Sea, much nearer to Germany and Poland and Sweden and Denmark. And so this was the kind of overspill from the conflict that we had all feared. So the idea that there are these kind of rogue elements or covert elements within the Ukrainian system that are perhaps sort of pushing the boundaries of where they want the war to be fought beyond limits that would be accepted by the West would be potentially problematic. I guess all of which points to a contradiction at the heart of the attack that we're talking about here, because on the one hand, it was this incredibly classy operation using fake passports, military-grade explosives, and it was pulled off almost flawlessly. But on the other hand, it didn't actually disrupt the flow of any gas at all. And as you've just told us, it's potentially put the Ukrainian government in a really uncomfortable position, making it seem as if they're widening this war and attacking infrastructure that's nowhere near the battlefield and that European countries could potentially rely on. So so technically, it's a really professional operation, but strategically, kind of amateurish. Absolutely right. Yeah, on one level, this is a fantastic, as you said, it's a fantastic professional operation. They achieved their goal, the pipelines were ruptured and damaged, and they caused hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of dollars of damage. And they weren't detected, yeah? They weren't detected at the time. We still don't know who they are. So in that sense, it was a skillful operation. On the other hand, geopolitically, an act like this, a sabotage act like this, is always going to have consequences. And the consequences are much muddier and, and make it a lot, lot less certain what the intention was and what was going on. Who thought it was a good idea to blow up these sort of high-profile pipelines because it creates this concern, like, what else could be targeted? What, what else is at risk? Who are these guys that think that these infrastructure assets outside the conflict zone are in play? What else do they think is in play? And you sit there and you think to yourself, how this operation was done the geopolitical consequences may not have been top of their mind. Yeah. This is an incredible mystery. It's compelling and dramatic. Given the sensitivities of it all, do you think we'll ever get the truth? I think we can get more of the truth. All of the truth, I think that's going to be an elusive concept. So I think there is a chance that investigators will manage to identify some of the perpetrators, that this group of six, there may be enough clues, there may be some more information they may well be able to do that. Or there may be some evidence that will slightly sharpen up whether it was 
a pro-Ukrainian group or some kind of Russian false flag operation. What is less clear is whether we'll get to a point where we'll be able to point to any political culpability, particularly if it is a pro-Ukrainian group. You know, will we be able to find out who gave the orders? And I think that we may struggle to find out. Well, as we find out more, Dan, come back and tell us about it. I'd, I'd love to do that. That was The Guardian's defence and security editor, Dan Saber, whose reports and analysis on the Nord Stream explosions you can follow at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.